in a world where literature is dominated by dusty leather-bound books with no pictures. Three men dare to venture to their local comic shop to approach the counter and utter those three magic words. Make mine paperback. Welcome in and welcome back to Make Mine Paperback, a podcast about comic books and the mascot of the brand formerly known as Green Giant Great Big Tender Peas. In 1999, he placed third on the list of the 20th century's top 10 advertising icons by the marketing industry's leading publication, Advertising Age. Born in 1928 and the subject of a 55-foot-tall fiberglass statue in blue earth minnesota the jelly green giant continues to sell good things from the garden the garden in the valley the valley of the jolly ho 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 green giant from the garden i'm graham green giant giles giddily greeting guests hi there lovely listeners joining me as always his humor is planned but none of it's canned he thinks dc is always fresh Stephen shear and he's currently constructing a 55-foot fiberglass figure of his future friends. He's a Marvel madman, Alex Shear. This week, we conclude our exploration of third-party publishers. To finish our celebration of comics not put out by DC or Marvel, we have my book on the theme, Spencer and Locke, number one, from Action Lab Comics, written by David Popose, with art by Jorge Santiago Jr. and colorist Jason Smith. When his grade school sweetheart is found dead, there's only one friend Detective Locke can trust to help solve her murder, his childhood imaginary panther, Spencer. But when they face a vicious crime syndicate and memories from Locke's traumatic youth, can this unlikely pair survive long enough to find the truth? We'll discuss that and more this week. But before we get to that, Alex, what'd you read this week? Thank you for that intro, Graham. They they get better and better. I gotta I just gotta mention that. They just you're you're doing well with this. I'm proud of you. But this week I finished the Ultimates Volume Two with the a little bit more modern twist on some of our classic Avengers heroes. Little little fresh paint job, if you will, on what they look like, including a black Nick Fury, aka Samuel L. Jackson, uh penned and drawn into the Marvel Comics series. So finish that up. Really excited. Some great stuff there. It's just, I mean, it's a great take on classic Avengers and their team ups and whatnot. So really big fan of that one. Steven, what'd you read this week? I think uh, you already know one of the books I read this week is some more invincible, mm, but then right. I did start a new series called the mini deaths of Layla star. That was mm. a recommendation for my wife, but I've actually really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, as the listeners will find out, we'll discuss it in more detail later. Cool. Very cool. That's one I haven't heard of, so I'll be excited to read that. Yeah. That's uh, This week I dove back into Green Lantern, uh, the Kyle Rayner run, and uh, I got to read a little bit of uh, Green Lantern and also the New Titans from that same time, uh, doing a little bit of crossover stuff between them. Uh, kind of fun to read some uh, early 90s stuff. Who doesn't love the early 90s? That's right. That's when uh, Steven was born and really brought light to all of our lives. <laughs> Wow. Graham, way to keep me humble. <laughs> That's right. Welcome, Stephen. We're glad you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we're talking about, uh, from Action Lab Comics, Spencer and Locke. Uh, we're talking about the first issue of that run from 2017. Uh, this is a book about uh, a guy and his 
stuffed panther, and uh, they're both detectives in a city. Uh, the the setting of this book is kind of Bill Watterson meets Frank Miller. Uh, it's clearly a reference to Calvin and Hobbes. It's also very clearly a uh, Sin City reference, and I think the combination of the two is pretty cool. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I was going to dive right into that, actually, and talk about the Bill Watterson Sin City connections. Because even from the main, that first page of panels, like the the Spencer and Locke, it's it's very much that exact same font that Calvin and Hobbes use. The very, I mean, even all the way down to the Red Wagon, just everything is very, very, very Bill Watterson. So I, I'd be very curious in external research to know just how much Bill Watterson influence this author i'm sure you probably know better than i but or not this author but this artist i'm but i'm sure it's pretty heavy considering i mean even looking at the the facial features the the way the speech bubbles are drawn everything is just very old comic strip which i love well i think this this is very um very much a parody of uh, calvin and Hobbes. it's Mm -hmm. it's obviously a parody and it's not just like an artist being influenced by Bill or by Bill Watterson. It's an artist and writer really wanting to uh, write a world. I mean, it, it's almost Calvin and Hobbes fan fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. What if Calvin grew up with a you know less desirable background? What if his uh, mom was abusive? What if his dad was evil? Uh, and what if he really needed Hobbes to be around to uh, you know sort him out and protect him when he needed it? Uh, and then what if we aged those two up and put them as detectives in the middle of, you know, kind of a Sin City-esque uh, city where where things are dark and gritty? Um, and I, I think that's, well, I, I think it's very clearly like it's it's a it's a reference to both of those things. It's almost a parody of both of those things. Um, and it's definitely uh, not trying to hide the fact that it's it's been influenced by both of those. Well, sure. And I wasn't going to say that it was hiding it at all. Just, I just, I personally love that connection as, as Calvin and Hobbes was something, you know, as a kid, we all grew up on, we all loved, you know, carrying around a stuffed tiger. That's cool. Like, you know, now he's doing it with a panther and that's still cool. Yeah. I I thought it was a very fun read too. It was, it was fresh and unique. I mean, even though if it was a parody of Calvin and Hobbes, I feel like it was its own, it had its own unique flavor to it that I liked. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's definitely, in my opinion, anyway, definitely well written. Um, and then the art in it, you know, like like you said, it, it comes from a little bit of Bill Watterson um, and in that comic strip. It also kind of mirrors the uh, the art in some of uh, Frank Miller's work. Um, and so between the two of those, we end up with this kind of dark and gritty detective book about a man and his imaginary stuffed panther. Um and I, I just I love the premise. That's that's where I'm coming in and, and just loving this idea that somehow Locke is so good at his job that they don't care that he carries around a stuffed panther and talks to it pretty frequently. They're not worried about his imaginary friend. They're going, we like the way you solve crimes. So go out there and uh, take the panther with you. Yeah, but does the panther, because there's that one point pretty early on where the panther's sniffing, you know, he's like sniffing the crime scene. So does, you know, how does that work? Is he actually getting help or is he just kind of? Well, so this this run um, in particular for the Spencer and Locke is is four issues. Uh, and then there is a volume two, which takes place six months later, also four issues. So total, there's eight issues of Spencer and Locke out there. 
uh, and I've read all of them. Um, and so I can tell you that as time goes on, it becomes more and more clear that Spencer exists as it, it's definitely an imaginary friend. Um, and, and Locke carries him around as a stuffed animal to make him a little bit less imaginary. But Spencer allows Locke to do the things that he that needs to be done in order to protect himself. Uh, but it also allows him to kind of compartmentalize that, those parts of his life. Um, so without getting too spoiler heavy, uh, that's Spencer allows Locke a couple of times to kill people without actually taking on the guilt of having killed people. Um, okay. So, so yeah, in that situation where we say, you know, is your nose picking up anything? We noticed that nothing that is detected is actually detected by Spencer's nose. There's stuff that Locke noticed just by separating out this consciousness and, and having putting it in the eyes of the stuffed panther. It allows him to kind of look at the crime scene from multiple angles, but it's, it's all in Locke's head. I think it's pretty I, clear. Yeah. I think you I, could I put it pretty clear too, but I just kind of mentioned that he's like, he, he said his nose is always so good. And I'm like, well, I mean, if, if he's imagining Locke or yeah, Locke or Spencer, that's one thing, but um, to actually be able to get, you know, have like a better nose than you would as a humid. That's kind of how I was looking at it. I think you could, you could say he put it in his eye, not his eyes, but that's just me. <laughs> so uh, for our listeners who haven't read Spencer and Locke yet, that's a reference to the stuffed Spencer and also the imaginary version of Spencer uh, missing an eye in this, uh, in this book. Uh, if we, we read some of the pages about the character design uh, at the end of the book, uh, we come across the idea that uh, Locke, uh, who is who's the the actual human uh, character in this pair, uh, has a scar over his eye, and so the missing eye on Spencer is kind of meant to mirror that. Again, this it's an idea that this this stuffed animal is a part of Locke. They're they're not two separate entities. They really are just one. Yeah, I mean, he he definitely it, you can tell that as part of his his childhood. He kind of, you know, psychologically, it seemed like he needed to, I don't know if he like split his personality, but he just kind of needed a way to kind of handle all that trauma. And so it just kind of seems like that stuffed panther is kind of what he uses as his, you know, like emotional baggage. And this is Locke. We we notice throughout the book that he does have that traumatic background that he comes from. It's his, uh, at the end of the book, we meet his you know, almost super villain, but definitely sort of mob boss dad. Uh, his mom at the beginning of the book, we see that she is having sleepovers uh, and she's referring to those sleepovers as work. Um, so it's, it's pretty heavily implied that his mom is at least in part a prostitute. Um, and certainly uh, we see her explicitly uh, beating him uh, later on in this books. We see that his babysitter also not a good person. Um, so through it all, he's had a pretty rough childhood. He ends up at this uh, kind of home for wayward kids and uh, school. And at that school, they're pretty rough on him too. He's, mm-hmm. he's bullied. He's um, he has a, he has a tough caregiver and, uh, and principal of the school who is, who is mean. And so above all that's uh we will see Locke come from a, a really tough background. And so we, we know that he's using Spencer as his way to compartmentalize the things that he doesn't want to really deal with himself. Yeah, it's a good word, compartmentalize. 
I was going to say, yeah, that's that's a that's a spot on uh, way to he 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 forces himself to utilize this as his escape in a sense. Yeah. And we see that he's he's also using so he uses the stuff animal to kind of put the parts of himself that he he needs, but that he can't really deal with in his own head. Uh, And so Spencer serves the purpose of doing the things uh, that need to be done that Locke can't do himself. Uh, although he does end up doing them himself. Uh, but also he serves the role of filling in for that role model that Locke really needs and that he doesn't have. And so Spencer, I mean, this is Locke giving himself advice, but by putting the words in Spencer's mouth, they seem a little more important and a little more like a mentor uh, being a role model rather than a, a stuffed animal that you talk to yourself through. Yeah, he he definitely, I mean... I don't, I think he definitely needs Spencer to, like he kind of said, I mean, he compartmentalizes a lot of the trauma that happened to him, but um, then he uses him to, you know, he, he's still figuring all these things out. So, you know, he does make it as a detective, but uh, you know, like, I, like we said at the beginning, I just can't believe that people aren't off put that he's kind of talking to himself. I mean, there's that lady at the diner who tries to call him out on it. And then he's just like, mind your own business. Who's not messed up a little bit, but it does kind of seem like, I don't know. It just seems as though it, it does. Spencer definitely helps him kind of do these things he wouldn't normally be able to do. But at the same time, it does kind of seem like at what point is it kind of unhealthy? That's, that's kind of what one of my thoughts was. And we see that the the case that they're solving here, we see uh, Spencer and Locke have been working cases, but the case that they're assigned to work is Sophie, uh, Locke's childhood girlfriend. And she is brutally murdered. And somehow, guy who who used to be in a relationship with the victim of this murder is put on the case. I mean, that's we already see that this police force is okay with one of their detectives walking around with a stuffed doll that he talks to all the time. Uh, so I don't know that I'm that surprised, but he definitely shouldn't be on this case, right? Well, like this, this is like, like the epitome of emotionally involved. Well, exactly. I think you know, there's there's so many layers of separation you have to have to be even be assigned to a case let alone a murder case and the fact that he's had an intimate relationship with the murder victim knows she has a child and is like oh yeah this is my stuffed animal like hey you know check him out like he's right here like he's just he's involved but then he continues to over involve him there's no there's no all right this is a case He's he's adding more layers of complication to it, which I find really, really wild. That's right. Yeah. His, his former adversary teacher uh, is involved in the case. His former bully is involved in the case. His former girlfriend is involved in the case. Uh, he is uh, getting involved with her family and, and, you know, practically adopting her daughter. And it's like everything about this is Locke going way too far. Wait, I mean, just just way too far, especially just, the scene with the bully. <laughs> I was just going to say that, too. I was going to, you know, as you say about getting emotionally involved, the first thing he does is he goes and without a warrant and breaks in. And, you know, I think he almost kills the guy. He hurts him pretty bad. And so I just can't believe that he would even be allowed to be on that case after something like that. Well, and there is certainly some argument that, like, he it's partially self-defense, right? That's the but he's broken into this yeah. guy's shop and then he gets hit. So I don't know that the self-defense argument works for me here when he has broken into this guy's illegally broken into this guy's shop uh, and he gets caught in the middle of the night breaking in this guy's shop. And so he 
the guy, right, the bully, hits him. And then we see Locke defending himself by very nearly killing this man. Yeah, and he shoves a cigarette in his ear. And... That's right. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah, just mutilating the guy, beating the crap out of him. Um, and then getting mad at Spencer for not participating in the violence. Yeah. <laughs> getting mad at Spencer, who, as a reminder, is a stuffed animal. <laughs> yeah. It would have been interesting if he had gotten involved in that fight, too. That's right. <laughs> you wonder wonder how Locke's doing it. That's right. Well, so, and I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and I just think it's it's so fascinating. I think there's part of, you know, Locke who, and maybe this is me reading too much into it. Maybe this is a common analysis, but uh, part of me thinks that by Locke using Spencer to compartmentalize and to deal with whatever, he kind of blurs the line between real and not real with Spencer's existence. And I think that that's kind of what gets him in trouble a little bit. He uses Spencer as a, uh, not a scapegoat, but a um, a way out. Like, well, I know Spencer's got my back, so I can do whatever I want kind of thing. Well, well, really, it, it's he uses Spencer as an opportunity to do things that normally he wouldn't let himself do. So he uses Spencer as a way to escape these societal and social norms uh, that he might normally be confined to. And and yeah, we do. We see as if you keep reading, uh, but even in this issue, we see that it gets him into trouble. Um, you know, avoiding these social norms of, and uh, going ahead and allowing himself to participate in like, really violent sort of things. And then his role model is himself, right? Himself through the stuffed animal. So when he goes to somebody for advice, he's never going to get that hard like you really screwed up, kid. Because he made the decision already. Like, so he's talking to himself, the, the decision that I made, what do I think of it? And he goes, well, you were justified. I agree. I was justified. Yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> everything here is wrong, just not great. But what I do love is when we see the style of, of Bill Watterson creep in as we kind of use the Bill Watterson style as um, – flashbacks so the stuff from Locke's youth is in this comic strip style uh and the stuff that is present day is in the sin city style Mm -hmm. um so the kind of the juxtaposition between those two and also kind of the wackiness that we see juxtaposed you know with this uh with this truly dark and violent thing it's throughout this comic book and to me it almost makes it funny i mean it it really approaches the humor line and stops and lets you laugh just enough that you can feel bad about yourself later. That's that's a that's exactly one of the points I made when we were when I was coming up with notes when I was reading it was I was like this is almost borderline dark humor, but you do it's like I would go back and reread it and I'd feel bad about like almost laughing at it because it'd be like I mean at the very beginning he's like I didn't expect a reunion like this and I'm just like wow it's like you know skirting the line of humor right there, but overall yeah it's very dark, but it, it at times you would almost chuckle, but. Yeah, you'd feel bad about it, especially rereading it. It's just a very confusing how he blended the seriousness of Frank Miller and the lightheartedness of Calvin and Hobbes. Well, and I was I was going to add to that, you know, you're talking about feeling bad almost about laughing and stuff. You look at some of Frank Miller's work, even within the Sin City, like it's there's moments where you do kind of chuckle because, yeah, it's serious. Yeah, it's dark. But I think that's part of what comic writers and storytellers want to do is they want to make sure that you understand that you're reading this as a piece of entertainment 
This isn't designed to, I mean, sure you can, you can take things and make it serious or whatever, but I think in general, for the most part, writers and artists understand that this is entertainment so they can throw in an occasional bit of humor or something to kind of make you laugh or smile as you're digesting what they've put on paper. Do you think it's to remind the audience that it's entertainment or do you think it's the writer writing something that they've seen in reality, right? Because when you experience something over and over again, it does become a little bit less significant. And we all know, right? You go to your job and you have this mind numbing, whatever it is, the part of your job that's just mind numbingly boring. You often make jokes about that, right? That's the stand around the water cooler and be like, I can't believe I did that again. <laughs> and so if, if his job, if the city that he's in, he's constantly coming up on these just mutilated bodies. Maybe that is where he just goes, I didn't expect a reunion like this. <laughs> so you <laughs> because think he is, be... he just, he just grizzled. Mm. It would be like lock or uh, not lock, or it'd be like a water cooler talk for, for people who like, um, like coroners or people, you know, people who deal with death all day. It's just like, Oh yeah. I had to deal with another, you know, homicide today. Yeah. I think, yeah, that'd probably be, you know, it'd be interesting to think if, you know, people who work in those kind of professions, if they do have their own, mundane thing that they make jokes about i mean just because they deal with more intense situations they probably do deal with those routine tasks that they just make jokes about it's funny it's a good take yeah i think they have to right well i was gonna say yeah i think i think that's where it is they have to almost do that to uh to, to break up that monotony if you will to break up that repetitiveness of the same thing over and over and so that no that's that's a good point that's i've i didn't look at it that way but that's that's a good point to me though i think it's just that a lot of times especially if he's dealing with trauma people often like i think he's just using humor though to kind of get away from other potentially serious situations that was my take i i agree too i think i think we see, we've already seen him hide his trauma in his stuffed animal so to hide his trauma behind humor that makes sense too that's <laughs> It's uh, we already know that he's great at this escapism stuff. Let's talk about the school that he goes to to investigate. That's we know that Sophie's been working at this school. Right. Um, and we see the flashback of the school. He's talking about the uh, the now principal. But when he was a kid, she was a teacher. Uh, and we see this flashback about the uh, what's the capital of Thailand. And uh, and Locke responds, low rent lady boys. Which like. <laughs> I don't know how old he is, but based on these, I think he's pretty young. Like I'm thinking like, like 10 or younger and he's saying low rent lady boys, which is a joke that like I thought was very funny, but I'm, I'm thinking the 10 year olds in that class didn't get. So I just, I just don't know that his audience was appreciative of his humor. He's an artist outside of his own time. Well, I, again, that you, we talk about the connection to Bill Watterson, right? That was also very much Calvin. A lot of his humor didn't land with his classmates because he was too intelligent for them to, to get it. You know, like, I don't know, too intelligent for Calvin. I think he was too weird. Um, so <laughs> okay, maybe, but like, I mean, you can't deny that Calvin wasn't intelligent in those comics. Like, I'm sorry. I, I think he was very intelligent. Well, he, he's, he's the kind of person that I would argue is intelligent in real life. But in the comic strips, we are pretty frequently seeing him fail tests. Um, I mean, yeah. not, Intelligence be isn't just smart. measured by test taking, as we all know, or else, you know, I would have actually passed high school. But um, no, it's I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, Calvin's constantly 
and I and I don't want to keep jumping back and forth on the Calvin and Hobbes fence, but Calvin constantly comes up with all these crazy things, all these like games, all these I mean elaborate fictional things. Like I mean, that's a pretty active and intelligent mind, I think. And so I think the same is here is like you've got to have some level of intelligence and a little bit of again that dark humor to uh to come up with some of this stuff as as a kid especially well Locke is definitely really good at this and so we <laughs> see kind of kind of edgy humor when he's a kid we see kind of edgy humor as an adult and heck as long as he's solving cases i think it's fine i mean if i'm the police chief in this city which where clearly the kind of brutal violence is the norm fine that's fine go ahead take your stuff panther out there investigate these murders if you keep closing cases i don't care what you do Say low rent lady boys as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, the so city good. does very much feel like a Gotham setting or something. I mean, not you know, not to the conversation we'll get to it, but especially with the way it ends too, it does seem mm-hmm. it does seem like crime is pretty rampant. That's right. So this uh, this this principal of the school um, obviously reminds me of the teacher from Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, although this this principal is a little bit a little bit tougher than the teacher from Calvin and Hobbes was. Um, but she also reminds me of, uh, you know, the movie Blues Brothers, um, and they go to visit the penguin, um, yeah. the nun of, of, of their school. Um, that's that's who I, I think this person reminds me of is, is uh, she's like telling uh, Locke that you need to solve this case and you need to you need to figure it out. And uh, I didn't like you as a student. yeah there's there's no like oh so glad to see you so glad you're back right she she even had a horrible name too it was like miss was like scab tree or something horrible yeah miss scab tree yeah gotta love it it was i mean very much the uh i mean and you can kind of just tell just based off of how it's written and what she kind of says is it's she very much dealt with tougher kids right like it wasn't a cakewalk dealing with her classes. And I mean, she kind of mentions it a little bit about not all the kids grew up like you or whatever. Um, well, I think this is, is definitely following on the theme, which is it's kind of taking Calvin and Hobbes. What if Calvin and Hobbes took place in Sin City? How would that change these characters? <laughs> mm-hmm. And we, we notice at least in this writer's mind, pretty significantly is the answer. Um, we, we see differences in these characters. There are certainly some things that shine through as similarities, uh, but the the differences in growing up in Sin City versus wherever the heck Calvin Hobbes <laughs> is set, um, significant, to say the least. Yes. Yeah. Being a teacher in Sin City would be no no cakewalk. <laughs> I think it would be be pretty challenging. Yeah. Just imagine. J- j- just imagine, you know, running running through town to go get groceries and you're, you're seeing a guy walk around with a giant stuffed panther solving a murder. Like what's going on here? Yeah. You've already got so much to deal with living in, you know, that horrible place. You're not even going to think twice about it. Right. Yeah. That's not right. at all. It's going to, well, you already have your own daily stuff that you have to deal with much less. You have to deal with the rampant crime in this city. I don't care. I don't care about a guy walking around with a stuffed animal. <laughs> He's the least of my concerns. <laughs> I, do. I don't care. You, you do you man. Don't die. So after after he goes to the school, he meets with the the mom of Sophie, mm-hmm. and uh, we see him meet Sophie's daughter, Hero. Uh, one cool name for a daughter. Great. Um, two, we see that Hero is hanging on to her own stuffed animal, and that uh, Locke kind of shares Spencer with her. So we're definitely seeing some parallels between the two kids. Um, 
I I love Hero as a character. I mean, she might be my favorite character in this. I feel really bad for Hero. That was so she only she already lost her mom, and then at the end too, there's a drive-by shooting that takes her grandma too. So it's just I feel really bad for her. I think uh, it, you know she's gonna have some pretty significant trauma here, and I'm sure she's gonna have her own way of of coping. You know, it might not be through creating a Spencer, but she's definitely gonna need to learn something from. I mean, I think Locke could really really do some good here and, well, and kind of help. Well, Graham kind of mentioned um, earlier when discussing Hero just ever so briefly about the how Locke kind of quasi adopts her, if you will. Um, and I think it'll be really cool to see, like, because I haven't read the 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 rest of the issues, but I think it'll be really cool to kind of see where she goes as a character and how she develops. And does she become kind of like a little sidekick for him, you know, where she runs her own little detective thing? I think that'd be cool. You know, so I don't know. I, I, I like her as a character and I'm excited to see how she develops. So we, we definitely see this parallelism of Locke with Spencer and Hero with her stuffed animal as foreshadowing um, to what's coming up uh, later in the comic. Um, namely, that a guy who has the same last name as Locke uh, is calling himself Hero's grandfather, which certainly implies to us that uh, Locke, the former boyfriend of the now deceased Sophie, is the father of Hero. Mm. Uh, the other thing that we want to notice here is that her name is Hero. Uh, and I don't know if you guys are as into it as I am, but uh, nominative, nominative determinism, uh, meaning that like whatever your name is, uh, is a great way to, uh, you know, it's just a, an idea that your name might push you into a career. So if you named your kid Doctor, he might become a doctor. Um, and there's, there's kind of fun examples out there as you like read through the news and stuff where you see like somebody with, uh, you know, with certain names ending up in certain careers. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's kind of fun here, but when it comes to literature, when we talk about nominative determinism, the author is in charge. We don't even have to discuss the psychology of what the, I think it's pretty clear that hero is, is meant to become a hero or, She's meant to fail at trying to become a hero, but there's there's some significance to her name. Uh, and we know that in this dark city that uh, Spencer and Locke is set in, they could probably use a hero. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be a very interesting twist, though, if they made her become like a villain or something after naming her hero. But it, do, it did seem like she was destined for <laughs> bigger things. For greatness. Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't. Those seem to be the two pads. If you if you look into nominative determinism, uh, watch it, I think it's really cool. Um, so if you if you read up on that, it, there seems to be two paths that people take is either they really lean into it or they do the exact opposite. So either hero becoming a hero or hero becoming a villain. Both of those are very viable options for this. What's unlikely is that hero will become like an accountant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'd be really boring. That'd be a really boring job when it's seen. <laughs> yeah, seems seems terrible. Yeah, especially in accountants in city, though. I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah can you like, imagine what failing business are you going to work for? That's right. What what cash based front company do you want to do the books for? <laughs> I actually know that I changed my answer. That could be really exciting in Sin City. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, except it would be really exciting because of the thought that you might get caught. Except in Sin City, there's no chance. Yeah, they've got much bigger, caught, yeah. much bigger fish to fry. <laughs> They're not worried about a money laundering front. When you know there's brutal murdering murders yeah, happen, you know bodies in the feet. alleys. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Multiple bodies, not just yeah. one. So yeah, we see hero 
kind of following the uh, structure of Locke, uh, having a, a super traumatic childhood. And at the end of this, we see Hero's house gets shot up. Hero survives miraculously, but her grandmother does not. And Hero is kidnapped by a man calling himself Augustus Locke uh, and claiming to be her grandfather. Uh, and that's how this issue ends. I mean, overall, as an issue, I think it's a great start to a story. And it, it's the start of this story made me go on and read the rest of the issue in, in volume one and volume two back to back because I just needed to know what happened. Sure. And, uh, you know, as as I read through this, right, it something I really liked about this was how much it kept you engaged. Every time you turn a page, you're like, what's next? What's next? What's happening? So I really love how this pulls you in right off the get go with a little bit of familiarity, right? Because we all know Calvin and Hobbes. We're all familiar with that. We're comfortable with that. But then we're also all familiar with, again, Sin City and Frank Miller. So you get drawn in right away with those familiar elements. And then the story is really compelling and it just keeps going. It makes you want to drink in more. So I really, really loved how well done this was. And I'm excited to finish reading it. Like these are going to be the things that I probably finish in the next week because it's just so well done and there's a lot to it. So yeah. And my personal favorite book, comic books and books in general are the ones that combine. I mean, every, you just need a little bit. I mean, even if it is dark humor, I like that you put in a little bit of dark humor because sometimes if you are reading like Sin City or a darker story, sometimes it, you know, it does get to be a little bit too much. So it is nice when they have like the lighter, you know, funnier moments, you know, here's a, like Graham said, just positioning like this, uh, the juxtaposition of just this, you know, stuffed panther, stuffed panther, and these horrible crime scenes. Somehow, it's like it, it. The stories. I mean, he's still solving murders. It's still a good crime thriller, but just that humor just is just kind of a nice relief sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it keeps you engaged, but also isn't too like you know corny with the humor. And I think the it still retains kind of the soul of both Sin City and Calvin and Hobbes. We see the relationship between. Spencer and Locke is very much the relationship between Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, we see in at one point uh, Spencer talking about how he grew up in the jungles of Africa and Locke going, no, you didn't. You didn't grow up in the jungle. You didn't. <laughs> he says, let, let me finish the story, which is very much a Calvin and Hobbes thing. Uh, the one thing I wanted to say before we uh, close out on this book, uh, did you notice the uh, the snowmen in the yes. background of the yes. book? I loved it. That's the one like supreme Calvin and Hobbes reference that we see in present day in this book. Um, and it makes you wonder if uh, Locke is the one who made those snowmen, well, even as an adult. So I, I wanted I, I couldn't think of it and I had to look it up while we were doing while we were doing the show today. But I couldn't think of Calvin and Hobbes did like little panels where they were a detective like duo where they actually solved crimes. Tracer Bullet. So I, you know, just like I said, I had to look that up, but I was like, yes, this, this gave a lot of those tracer bullet vibes, which I, which I think was even better. Like talk about a true, wonderful Calvin and Hobbes tie-in. The snowman was brilliant. I laughed when I saw the snowman. And if you like the tie-ins, keep reading uh, Spencer and Locke for uh, other tie-ins, including Calvin Ball and Spaceman Spiff. Yes. Uh, so so <laughs> go ahead and uh, keep reading for those references. So overall, uh, what do we think of the book? I really liked it and I would highly recommend it. And it is one that I will also, I mean, I'm still working on Invincible and that one's taking me a minute. So this mm-hmm. one's going to get added right to the collection I've, of, of uh, the queue of comics to read. Yeah, no, I really big fan. Again, I we've talked about it ad nauseum, but 
it's it's the tie-ins and the familiarity of stories that I know already with kind of a different twist to them that I it's going to keep me coming back and I'm going to finish this series out because this was very, very well done. Yeah, and one more thought is this. I like how it, it gets the line between uh, humor and the, you know, more crime thriller. I really like that too. I wanted mm-hmm. to throw that in. So that wraps up our theme for the month of November, which was third-party publishers. Uh, starting next month, we're going to have a new theme. Uh, to pick our theme for the month of December is Stephen. Stephen, what are we going to be reading about next month? Well, Graham, as uh, everybody alive knows now that the last couple of years haven't always been the best, uh, but some of the good things that did come out of it are comics. Uh, in 2021, there was a lot of good comics published, and... Uh, I, you know, I feel like we can do our own good countdown of our personal favorites at the end of the year. So we're going to do in 2021 some of our favorite stories that have been published from 2021. We'll get to talk about some current issues, hopefully some of the listeners have heard as well. And then, uh, yeah, just remember some of the good things. And so then we don't think 2021 was all bad. So to kick that off, our book for next week is going to be Batman White Knight Presents Harley Quinn number three. Uh, sorry, I had to pick number three because the first two were actually published in 2020, so I didn't want to <laughs> cheat. So this one was published in January of 2021. Uh, it was written by Katana Collins, artist Mateos. Sorry, I can't pronounce names very well. Scaleria. Mateo Scalera. Scalera. Thank you, Graham. And Dave Stewart. Got that one. <laughs> Are you sure? I, I don't know. It might be Stuart. <laughs> Who knows? Um, he is a colorist. <laughs> Talking about nominative determinism. Huh? <laughs> This is not an example of that. <laughs> um, and so to all the listeners that are with us today and plan on reading it, I just want to throw out the disclaimer that this is not a canon story. So when you read it, it's going to be pretty interesting. <laughs> so just don't take it too seriously. And, then, and speaking of that, when we uh, you're talking about reading along in these books, for our month of December, we're going to be doing some fun uh, options for you guys to read along. We thought maybe we'd provide you with our comics ahead of time. Uh, Stephen, where can they uh, find the list of comics we're going to be talking about in December? I'm glad you asked, Graham, because if the if the listeners go to Instagram and search for the hein- handle, the handle makes right. mine. <laughs> He's not a composer. Stop it. <laughs> it's a musical Instagram. You're welcome. The handle make mine paperback. And they will, if they check back later this week, because it hasn't been posted yet. But if you check back later this week, we will have the comp- complete reading list for this full month. So then everybody can get a good start. And you can re- read right along with us. Uh, you can agree or disagree with our opinions as long as they're the opinions of Alex and Steven, because my opinions are always right. Uh, doubtful. We all... doubtful. <laughs> De- rude. All right, guys. Also uh, doubtful. Do we have any, we have any closing thoughts uh, before we finish this thing off? Well, Graham, thank you for uh, giving me another comic to read. You have a uh, you have a good taste in finding third party comics, so I was going to say, I think Graham wins this month. You know, if we, if we had to make it a contest, I think Graham wins this month just with this comic. Well, we talk about references to Calvin and Hobbes, and I mentioned Calvin Ball just briefly earlier. Um, I picked the game for this month, right? This is, this was my theme month. So when you pick the game, go ahead and pick Calvin Ball because the only rule is I always win. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, we hope you go out and invent your own game. Uh, make it call it Calvin Ball, but probably replace Calvin with your name or maybe replace Ball with your name. I don't know, whatever you want. We hope that you enjoyed our month of third party publishers. We hope you found a publisher new that you might check out some of their stuff going forward. We hope you continue to read DC and Marvel because they still got great stuff 
Uh, we hope you go and enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner with your friends and your family, or maybe just you, and you think about the things in your life that make you thankful. We hope you go to your local comic shop. We hope you approach the counter. We hope you tell the person at the counter to make yours paperback. We'll see you next week. Thank you.